This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome, welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. Explore the mind of MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone. As he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Now, Now, up to to bat, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Boone. And today on the program, I'm joined by the president and the CEO of the Miami Dolphins. Ladies and gentlemen, Tom Garfinkel. Tommy, thanks for coming on the program. I appreciate it. Great to be with you, Booney. Well, how are things? Everything good down there, Miami? Yeah, things are good. We're, uh, team's doing well. We've got an exciting team. You know, the guys are all getting along really well. Uh, playing some great football right now so we got a ways to go we got to stay healthy uh every week is difficult in the nfl but but things are things are rolling right now things are going well speaking of that you have a background obviously you were you were the ceo of the of the arizona diamondbacks san diego padres what's the biggest difference between the national football league and major league baseball I think the biggest difference really is, you know, in baseball, you've got 162 games. It's a marathon. And, uh, you know, if you, if you have a, uh, you know, a 10 game losing streak, it's like losing one game, you know, one game in the NFL. So, uh, you know, the manager can't throw the trash can and say, you know, what are you guys doing out here? You, you, <laughs> they're going to see, you say, you know, Hey coach, we got a, uh, you know, 116 more of these things, you know? So, uh, in the NFL, every week's really intense. Uh, sort of like playoff baseball and in baseball, you know, because there's so many games, you know, there's a, there's a rhythm to it over the course of the season. Whereas in football, you know, week to week, the intensity just skyrockets. And what are the challenges? um, What do you think the challenges each face major league baseball, NFL football, um, that we as fans might not much not see or understand. Uh, you know, I think society's changing. I think, uh, you know, the isolation of people today, you know, in our society, what's happened with cell phones and how this generation is growing up with shorter attention spans. Um, you know, we used to sit down and watch television, you know, and, and, you know, watch an entire baseball game, you know, every pitch or, or sit on a Sunday and watch, you know, two or three games. You know, I, when I was in my early twenties, I'd, go to a bar in Chicago where I lived and sit there with a buddy and a couple friends and we'd watch football and you'd watch the whole game. Um, today, I think, you know, there's shorter attention spans. They're watching highlights. They're watching on their phone. I think they're still watching entire football games and entire baseball games, but I think, you know, their, their attention spans are shorter. So they're going to be more likely to kind of move in and out of different content, different things. So capturing the youth, capturing their attention, capturing relevance when there's so much content out there uh, so much to look at and uh and they have shorter attention spans uh you know i think it's a challenge moving forward as a player i remember i i always thought we had an obligation as players to to not you know because sometimes you, you you can never win first of all you sign 100 autographs on 101st kid when you got to get ready for the game uh, the 101st guy, you're a jerk. I understand that. That's that's kind of the nature of being an athlete. But I always took fans in consideration as much as I could. I had a job to do. I had to play at 7 o'clock every night. But I went out of my way as much as I could to, to engage with the fans because I realized that's what made our game move along. Um, how much time do you devote to taking care of fans as the CEO? A lot. I think, you know, everything starts with the fans. I mean, we exist because of the fans. Um, You know, whether that's baseball, football, Formula One racing, whatever it is, it only exists because there are fans 
you know, attending these events and, and, and watching these things on TV. So uh, everything starts with the fans. And as the CEO, I think you, you do devote a lot of time. We talk a lot, you know, with the team about when I say the team, I mean the entire business team, the, you know, everybody in the organization about being sort of fan centric, customer centric, that when we make decisions, we don't want to make decisions about, you know, how it makes it easier for us to execute something. We want to make decisions about how it makes it easier for the fan to have a better experience. So, you know, we spent a lot of time uh, working on that. We try to think about it, you know, what would I want if I was a fan? Uh, what would uh, every part of the experience from when you're driving in to where you park to when you're coming through security to the bathrooms, to concessions, to your seat, to uh, the music, the in-game entertainment, everything about the experience well, would I want to come in and, you know, uh, be queued up with 5,000 people waiting to get through security, then, you know, uh, stand in line to go to the bathroom, have no hot water in the sink when I go to wash my hands, uh, you know, in between innings have to, you know, watch TV commercials on the big screen and listen to them when I'm not watching on TV, I'm at the game. Um, you know, all of these types of things we think about, think about what's that experience going to be like for the fan. And, it ha and, and the fans, they range. You know, you'll have the corporate that, that are in the suites, and you'll have, you'll have the guys, the diehards that are in the nosebleeds. Um, how, how, do they, how, how do they communicate to you, to the, to the ball club? Well, we have social media now, so I call it a living focus group. I think you can go on social media and really see where the pain points are, see what the fans want, see what they're asking for. Um, you know, you can't do everything they're asking to do, and, and not every decision is mine either. Some of the decisions are ownerships or the NFL or Major League Baseball or whatever the case may be. But I think um, you really try to pay attention to, you know, what they want. We've had situations where after events, you know, I've seen consistent uh, feedback about parking or something. And we and then, you know, we, we get together as a team on Monday and we'll get in the room and figure out, hey, here was an issue last week and how do we fix it? So... Um, you know, the fans are out there now and they have a voice more than ever before, which I think is great because it's a, it provides an opportunity for us to get direct feedback, uh, every day. Talk about ownership, uh, Miami Dolphins owner, Steven Ross, uh, seems like he's an owner that really cares about, you know, it's a different world now from, from you go to the, it. It, it seemed it went from mom and pops in the, you know, 50 years ago to now everything's corporately owned. Uh, I had several owners uh, that I went through in my career. I had a Marge shot, very eccentric in Cincinnati. I had a Ted Turner in Atlanta. And then I had, uh, when I played for Seattle, I never met the owner. He never came to a game. And I think since he bought the franchise, he was never in attendance for a Seattle Mariner game, but, what, what is your interaction on a day-to-day -day basis um, during the football season uh, with, with, your, with your owner, Stephen Ross? You know, I talk to Steve probably you know, almost every day. We may go three or four days without talking, and then we'll talk three or four times in a day. Uh, Steve is a, is a wonderful guy. He, he cares very deeply about this, this team, about the fans, about Miami, uh, about these players. Uh, He's just a great guy. I mean, I, you know, I, I, it's hard to explain when you sent, spend time with someone like this who's sort of an iconic person. I mean, what he's done in his life, he was just uh, honored by the ULI, the Urban Land Institute, with a Lifetime Achievement Award. And we went to the, the uh, ceremony, and there was this video produced. And, and Steve is someone that's always looking forward, not looking back. So he's rarely telling stories about all of his accomplishments in his life or what he's done. He's always asking questions and talking about what are we going to do next? And at 83 years old, that's an amazing quality. He's always learning. He's always asking questions. He's always trying to do new things. And when you reflect back on what he's accomplished, it's pretty incredible. You know, we'll, we'll go to a city and we'll just go by something. He's like, yeah, let's, I got to stop here for a second. I'm like, why is it? Like, well, I own this building and we have to go in. Say, wait, you own this building? Like, yeah, I own that one and that one. So it's sort of like what he's built around this country um the affordable housing the, the the skyscrapers the the skylines that he's changed the schools the you know the things that he's done around the country are, are pretty remarkable and he's the kind of person that's always looking forward uh, he loves the game of football he wants to win the super bowl um you know we were in washington together 
a couple nights ago and uh you know it was enjoyable it was a fun game to watch to kind of be sitting here at nine and three and uh have a coach and a general manager who are just working great together uh have a team of players that enjoy playing together that are having fun playing the game right now and that are playing at a high level uh it's it's fun and i know i know he's enjoying that right now and you're you're kind of in the middle you have that interaction up with the owner and then down gm coach uh down down to the players how much did how much interaction do you have with them on on a daily basis once again, I played for organizations where uh, I see I, in Seattle, I saw Howard Lincoln was our CEO. I saw him every day. Uh, Chuck Armstrong was our president. I saw him every day. They were very much around in the manager's office. Now, I was in Atlanta. I was in Cincinnati. I've never I've never seen the CEO. I never saw the president. I saw the general manager. They were always there because they have to be hand in hand with the manager. But how much time do you spend around those guys and and talk? Obviously, you got to talk to your general manager, but on down to coach players. Yeah, fair amount. I mean, look, I try to let those guys do their job and stay out of their way to some degree. I think, you know, the football guys need to make the football decisions. Um, you know, I'm managing what, what I'll call, you know, the business and the business of football and trying to be a support function for them. Uh, I'm around the players. I enjoy the players. You know, we got a, we got a group of great guys on this team. Uh, I think the presence matters to them. I think, you know, look, we built a, Steve and I built a new, uh, world-class training facility that we moved into a couple of years ago. We designed it. We literally like drew out the, the floor plan, went and picked the stone together and, and designed this place to try to create an environment, a great environment for these players. Steve, uh, you know, isn't around every day. You know, you had, you, you mentioned you had three different owners. You might've had an environment where the owner was in the office every day in Seattle. You said you didn't have an owner around. So probably that's why, probably why Howard and Chuck were around. They effectively kind of were the owner. Uh, in my case, you know, Steve's not around every day. He's got a lot of things going on all over the country and he's, he's down here in Florida a lot. He's at every game. Uh, he's ex extremely accessible, extremely supportive, but he's not an owner who's, you know, making pricing decisions or trying to tell the general manager, you know, who to trade for. So, um, you know, I try to be that support function, be present for those guys, uh, be there for them when they when they need me to be. Um, you know, I love the game of football. I grew up playing football uh, in high school, and and uh, I love being around the game and just sometimes standing out at practice and and uh, and just being present. And I think our players enjoy that. If they need something, they know we're here for them um, and uh, and try to do things for them, you know, when we can and make their lives a little easier so they can focus on football. Chris Greer, your general manager, is kind of uh, – it's kind of the family business for him. He's He's got a um, – yeah. a brother's a GM. Uh, his dad was in the front office of the Patriots for years and years. He's kind of – he's kind of taken on that family business and, and does a great job for a general manager in, in, in the NFL. What are the qualities you look for? The attributes that, that a great GM has. Well, a great GM is, uh, is, uh, has good judgment decision-making first of all, because the GM has to make a lot of decisions. Um, and, you know, I think in Chris, what we have, you know, that's really special is that, uh, and I think he got this from his father, Bobby, who's, who's, a, who's a special guy. You know, Chris has a lot of humility. Um, Chris is all about the team first. Um, he's not a guy who uh, has a big ego, is out, you know, talking to the media behind the scenes, trying to promote himself. And, uh, you know, he, he's just focused on trying to build a great organization, be a great teammate uh, for Brandon Shore, who works with him, for Mike McDaniel, for all the coaching staff. Um, and you know, he's just, he's just a pleasure to be around. He's a good guy. He's not a, he's not a boastful, you know, big personality. He's a smart guy. Who's about the team, uh, who's measured, uh, who has a, an even temperament. So he doesn't get too emotional when things are going well. He doesn't, he enjoys it, but he doesn't, he doesn't pat himself on the back too much. And when things aren't going well, uh, he doesn't, overreact or panic in any way. And I think those are, those are really important qualities of the GM. 
I love watching your head your head coach do his interviews, his post games. Uh, Mike McDaniel uh, is doing a great job for 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 the ball club this year. You guys are nine and three. Um, you got a Mike McDaniel story for me? <laughs> well, I have a lot of Mike <laughs> McDaniel stories. Uh, Mike's great. Listen, Mike is uh, a, a special guy. He's he's he does things differently, and I think you know. One of the one of the ways Steve and I really hit it off when we started working together was we both believe in thinking differently and try to do things differently. That you know the word strategy gets thrown around a lot in, in the business world, and and from my perspective, strategy is not what you do better than your competition; it's what you do different. Uh, there's a lot of you know people talk about the NFL being a copycat league. There's a lot of um, you know a lot of coaches move around, a lot of scouts move around to different teams. Um, and so a lot of teams do things the same way, um, or look at things the same way or go look at film and say, Oh, here's what that team did. Look at that play. Let's copy that and go do, go duplicate that. I think what, what most resonated with Mike in the interview process was just that he is different, um, that he does want to approach things differently. Um, that he is, um, you, you know, an, an innovator get people in a room and say how do we solve this problem in a way that's never been done before and i think that's that's how steve and i think that's how we try to do things in the business um and and that's how mike's approaching approaching the football team and he does it with uh incredible positivity you know this guy shows up every day you know it, it it's a word that's not often used with head coaches in the national football league uh but from my perspective i was thinking about it yesterday you know mike's a guy that brings a lot of joy every day um and it's consistent and it's genuine you know he's not putting on a show um he 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 just is that grateful uh the guy you see in the media and on these shows and different things that's who you that's who he is that's who you see when you're alone in the room with him one-on-one just hanging out um so he's very authentic he's very genuine uh you know, some of the stories I can't tell, but I'm trying to think of a great story. Uh, I'm trying to think of a great story, but, you know, just just the 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 idea that here's a guy who, you know, doesn't look like a head coach in the National Football League. And, you know, when I called around to some of his players in the interview process, people he had coached, uh, I'd never heard players be more effusive about a coach helping them get better. Uh, and Mike's the kind of guy, and I think these players have changed a lot in the last, even just in the last five years, you know, NIL, transfer portal, uh, you know, my, my sons are in high school watching kids, you know, get recruited, uh, some of their friends, et cetera, get recruited at 14 years old. You know, these universities are bringing them in, putting them on the big screen, dressing them up in the uniforms, putting them on social media, this kind of stuff. These kids are growing up differently. And, um, the the old school way of just line up and shut up and do what I tell you to do kind of coaching uh, that used to work. Uh, I'm not sure that's the future of coaching. And what Michael do is he'll sit down, for example, and you know with a receiver and say, "Hey, I need you to block uh, corners and safeties in the run game." And he, I understand that you get paid to catch passes and catch touchdowns, but let me show you. And he'll put the film up and he'll say. Here's a three-yard run where the receiver didn't block. Now here's a 35-yard you know, explosive run where the receiver came down and blocked the corner, and here's what happened. Well, here's the next play. Here's what happened. After the explosive run, now they got to go, you know, uh, into it, you know, uh, they got to bring the safety down to protect against the run. That opens up the deep ball. Now look what happens the next play. We can throw the deep ball to this guy because now they're single high safety and you can score a touchdown. So if you block in the run game, you have a better chance of scoring more touchdown. So he explains the why. He sits down with them, and then the receiver will say, oh, okay, it helps me. I get it, and you care about me, and you want to see me catch more touchdowns, make more money for my career, and these things. So he develops those types of relationships. He explains why he gets buy-in, and he gets these guys really playing together, working together, um, and, and he'll innovate and do things for them where – you know, no one's ever taught them to do something a certain way. And then he teaches them to do it that way. It works and makes them a better football player. 
So, you know, that's really what coaching is, right? You're there to serve those players and, and teach them and make them the best version of themselves. That's how Mike approaches it every day. I think the players appreciate that. Uh, and it's a different mindset than thinking that as the head coach that you were there, you know, to be the czar of everything and those players are there to serve at your pleasure. <laughs> um, you know, that's not how Mike approaches it. So it, he's, a, he's refreshing to be around. Uh, uh, he's a lot of fun. Uh, win or lose, he's, he's consistent. It's, it's fun to be around. Yeah, he seems he seems very genuine, and he seems like he has the respect of his players. As a player, <clears throat> that's number one. I mean, you respect your skipper. Uh, you're probably going to go as far as you can with that that class of talent that particular year that you have. You're going to give yourself the best chance, and 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 this is such a game uh, not not just football, but but sports in general. It, it's a it's how do you deal with people? You know, how, how you were, you were, you were mentioning that story. I think, I think that's awesome. It's well, I don't want to block. I want to score a touchdown. Well, this is why we do it. And, and if we do this, if we do X, it goes to Y. And then the player says, well, that makes sense. Well, in the long run, that's going to be good for everybody. Yeah. I think, I think it's awesome. You know, the, the game of baseball right now, and you've got plenty of experience with, with major league baseball. I watch the game. And it's a little bit different than it was. And, you know, I'm not a get off. I'm not a get off my lawn guy. You know, it's not my game right now. I'm an ex player. I'm not a current player. Whatever they decide it's going to be, it's going to be. But they say little ball's dead and and we don't get runners over and we don't bunt. And and I understand uh, with metrics and and data points, uh, not all bunting isn't always to your advantage. But I watch the little things in the game. Not getting a runner over. Uh, not getting a runner in. And I think it drives me crazy. I want to pull my hair out. With a runner on third, then less than two. If you don't get it done, that drives me crazy. Sorry to switch yeah. the topic to baseball. I just think it's relevant. No, I'm happy to, the to, whole, I'm happy to talk about baseball. Yeah, To the whole coaching similar. thing. Yeah. Right. And, and when when he sits down with his players now in, in that scenario that you set up, Earlier, I think about a conversation I had in around 2000 with with a teammate of mine. There was a runner on second base. There was no outs. We were winning nine to one. And I saw in front of my, I saw him get the runner over. And I mean, not give himself up, but he was willing to make an out to get that runner to third. I, I hit after him that day. I hit a sack fly. And I came back to the dugout and I asked him. It was Edgar Martinez. I said, Edgar. I said, why'd you, it's nine to one. Why are you giving yourself up to get him over? He said, well, I wasn't giving myself up. I want to get a hit. He said, but that's how you play the game. And, you know, I've got 10 years in the big leagues and I'm, I'm sitting here learning right now. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, if you play the game right at the end of the year, you're going to be as good as you can be. And then you hope your teammate plays the game, right? And then your other teammate plays the game, right? I started taking on that way of playing. And it was amazing as a team how we came together and the camaraderie we had. And down to the 25th at that time, 25th man on the roster, now there's 26. They were all pulling on the same end of the rope. And it was, we get them over, we get them in, and it's one to nothing before it seems like the national anthem's over. And we had a team chemistry like I've never seen before. Until then, I didn't even believe in team chemistry. You know, I was coming from a Braves organization where – we won 104 games, went to the World Series. We lost, but we just won because we had better players than you did. And I didn't believe in team chemistry. I went to the Mariners, and that 01 Mariners team, we won 116 games. And it's a chemistry like I've never seen before, but it was started. But how do we play the game? Uh, Lou Pinella was the skipper. of, And when I asked for a, for a story, I, I think of Lou Pinella because that's the first thing that people ask me. Give me a Lou Pinella story. So I thought I'd turn yeah. it on you. Um but it's just that interaction, the people, the one-on-one, uh, and the respect starting from the top uh, that it seems that he really has. I don't know. I, I, I think it's it's fascinating, and I think it's cool. And you heard that story. It just re- it, when you when you told me that story, it just kind of resonated with me. So yeah, it's, I it's, went off on a about... long-winded tangent. Tangent. No, no, I, I enjoyed it. I, I, it is the same thing. Look, it's it's 
I think people think about in life in general in our society a little too much in a binary way, meaning it's either this or that, right? It's either, you know, are you an old school baseball guy or do you believe in this uh, money ball stuff? You know, and it's, it's the truth is somewhere in between, right? Are you an old school manager or do you do things a new way? Uh, the truth is somewhere in between. The, the best way to do things, in my estimation, is you know, there's a lot of value in you know, sort of old, old school way of doing things because it's been tried and true over many years that this is the way that, that works. With that said, to develop advantage, you have to do things differently than the way everybody else is doing it. So by definition, you've got to try some new things. Uh, are, you know, and I've seen the extreme of both. I think, I think in baseball, to some degree, you know, the analytics part of baseball, to, in some ways, almost got taken too far. Um, and the value in, like, at the end of the day, you win with players. You win with players. I mean, I, I saw this thing on College Football 150 on ESPN where Mac Brown was being interviewed, and uh, he said. Well, you know, when I when I didn't have very good players on my football team, we didn't win a lot of games, and I wasn't a very good football coach. And when, when we had some good players and we were a pretty average team, you know, we won some games, we lost some games. I was a pretty average football coach. And, boy, when we had some great players on our team, uh, boy, we won a lot of games. I was a really good football coach. He says, I coached them all the same. <laughs> you know, like basically yeah. you, win with, you win with players. And – and look, you, you know, your job as a, as a manager, as a leader, as a head coach, whatever, is to maximize the opportunity you have with the players that you have uh, to get the most out of them, to build that, that chemistry, because I do believe chemistry matters. Um, but, but, you know, how you do things, having an approach that's consistent matters. Having belief matters. You know, you, you know in my experience, there's, uh, you know, you think about, you know, knowing the guys at the Cubs well, you know, Jed and all those guys, like watching what they did in 15. In 15, you know, they had they had three years before that called 12, 13, 14, where they lost 100 games. And, and, and they were building something special by, by, by doing what everybody else wasn't doing. If you remember at the time, you know, uh, you know, there was this era where, where hitters were dominant. Well, throughout a hundred years of baseball, pitchers have been dominant over hitters. And so they went after hitters in the draft. You know, they drafted Chris Bryant. They traded Garza for Addison Russell. They, you know, they went after, they traded Cashner for Rizzo and they went and got built a lineup of not only hitters, but of, of team guys, of leaders, uh, like guys like Rizzo. And in 15, they went and beat the Cardinals and they went up, and and I have a <laughs> uh, uh, a couple of the players who I'm friends with from when they were with the Padres shared with me this video. They're up on Lester, John Lester's roof deck uh, with Eddie Vedder, and Eddie Vedder's up there singing "Someday We'll Go All the Way," you know, about the Chicago Cubs. And these guys are arm in arm singing "Someday We'll Go All the Way" because they had just beaten the Cardinals in one of the first playoff series in a long time for the Cubs. And they went on to lose that year. And then the next year, but they were poised. They were right there. And then the next year they went on and, you know, they trade for Chapman at the deadline and they go on and win game seven and, and, and win the world series in 2016. So, you know, that chemistry matters. Um, you know, there is a little bit of luck in these things and, uh, but having the right players, the right leaders, the right guys is, I still marvel at, at David Ortiz and what he was able to do in the playoffs, you know, there is such a thing as clutch. Some people in baseball believe everything regresses to the mean over time. Uh, there are people that step up in big moments and perform better in those moments. Um, you know, Booney, the thing about baseball for me is, you know, you, you watch 162 games. There is no other sport where you watch more failure. You know, yeah. it, it's hard to, it's hard to watch <laughs> when you watch highlights and you watch 10 or 15 games, you know, it's not that bad. But when you watch 162 games and you sit next to an owner and he's sitting there, you know, you got a, a runner on third with two outs and, and you're down a run and he can't bring that runner home. And the owner looks at you like, I'm paying that guy $27 million a year. It's like, well, that's one game out of 162 and out of 600 plate mm -hmm. appearances. And, you know, by the way, if you hit 250, you have a nice long, you know, if you, if you fail 75% of the time, 
you have a nice long career in the big leagues. If you fail, you know, uh, 70% of the time, you, you know, you, you might be in the hall of fame. Right. <laughs> so, you know, just, it, it's, it's hard to watch sometimes. It's a lot of failure. And when guys step up in big moments and do big things, you appreciate how, how, how special that really is. You know, it's not arbitrary and it's not uh, luck. Um, it's performance. And in baseball, I think, I think hitting a baseball is the hardest thing there is to do in sports. And there's a lot of people that have done like Deion Sanders who tell you the same thing. Yeah. It's, it, it's funny when, when people, you know, cause when they talk about, Oh, who's the greatest athlete in the world? They always usually want to go to a Michael Jordan or something like that. I said, guys, Baseball players by far are the best athletes. They could do everything. I said, Mike Trout, probably if you trained him right, could probably go out for a pass in the NFL. I'm sure Mookie Betts could play some sport. And I'm not saying play every day and make a lot of money at it, but could could compete. I said, name me a person that can get in the box and get a hit off Garrett Cole right now. In any other sport, it doesn't exist. I said, hitting is the kind of the uh the nemesis of every other sport of course i'm biased so i always it's go a with, skill with i mean baseball. it's 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 also right. a skill it's it's an art you know uh i had the pleasure of getting to know roland heeman really well and i'm sure you know who, who roland roland is. heeman's son was on my usc baseball team that's oh, how, how i know right anyway go ahead yeah roland's just a you know wonderful man and uh roland heeman for those of you out there that don't know, is this Mr. Magoo of a little little old man who, who you know, was the general manager of the White Sox for a period of time, the Orioles for a period of time. Uh, and Roland Heeman uh, did the first scouting report on one Henry Lewis Aaron. And I had the opportunity to be with Hank Aaron and Roland. And Hank Aaron was still calling him Mr. Heeman. And Roland still called him Henry. He'd say, uh, Hey, Henry, how you doing? You know, it's hey, Mr. Heeman. How are you? You know, I mean, Hank was probably in his late seventies at the time. They're still calling him Mr. Heeman. And I asked Roland one time, I said, I said, who's the greatest athlete you ever saw? Not baseball player. Who's the greatest athlete you ever saw? He didn't blink. Bo Jackson. Yeah. He said Bo Jackson. Um, you know, that's the one that comes to mind for me. I think, you know, just, you know, in his prime before his injury, the, the, the strength, the speed, the hand-eye coordination, the twitchiness, the ability to hit, throw, run, the speed was otherworldly. Uh, the physicality, the toughness, um, you know, that guy could do a lot of things. He could do just about anything, I think. Bo, Bo was – he was a guy I, play, I played against him very end for him, very beginning of my career. And I can't explain it to people. There was something about where you couldn't keep your eyes off him. At the time, he was pretty raw, pretty green hitter. But, man, you're going to watch what he possibly could do each and every at bat. He was just still learning the process. I had an interaction with him. He, he played with my father and at the end of my dad's career in those Kansas City teams. And, and I, I got to meet Bo and, and – uh, get to know him a little bit. And then I, I remember the first time I played against Bo, he got called, he got sent down for a rehab assignment in double A. I was in double A in the, in the Southern league. And he's at first base. And this is back, you know, we're talking old school, new school. This is back when you, when you were expected to take the runner out at sec or the, the fielder out at second base. And Bo looks at me and he goes, Hey, Booney, I'm coming to get you. And I kind of looked at him like, Bo, you can't get me. If I do this fundamentally correct, you can't. But then I looked at him and I thought, wow, if there's ever a time that I didn't want to be gotten by someone, it would be that <laughs> man right there. Anyway, yeah. the left-handed pitcher picks Bo off. He's picked off. He just stands there. He doesn't even go back to first base. He's got I – go, I, I come in to cover the bag at second base. He's probably 40 feet from me. He doesn't, and I'm thinking we're going to get in a rundown. He's going to be tagged out. We're going to move on. He doesn't get in a rundown. He takes off on a dead sprint to second base as fast as he's going to run. They throw me the ball. I'm holding the ball, and he's probably 20 feet from me. But he's running like 
he's running a race. I mean, he's he's tucked and flying. And I'm thinking, what's he doing? Is we're going to get in a rundown here? No, he's running. He's ten feet away. He's at top speed, like he's going to run me over. So I'm at second base, five feet away, still at top speed. I, I've never seen anything like this before. He kind of gets two feet away from me. I pull the tag away because I think he's. I'm bracing for impact. Like he does, he realize I'm not a catcher. Yeah, and he he steps. He just makes this move, stops on a dime, and puts his foot on the bag. And I, the umpire at the time, he calls him out because the ball beat him by 20 feet. But he was safe. I, I got so scared, I pulled the tag away. I thought I was going to get hit. <laughs> you thought he was going to go full and, Al McRae on you, and sure enough. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and Bo looks at me, and he goes, you know I was safe, right? <laughs> and I go... Actually, I do, but but the umpire, you know, we didn't have replay back then. So the it was umpire just, never but, seen anything like that in his life. He didn't know what to do. I've he never seen anything that. like it. Yeah, and and yeah. I never saw anything like it throughout my whole career. He was just he was different. I can't explain it to people, but to be on a field with him and to interact with him and to watch him move, he he was just different than anybody else. And I played with Dion for a few years in Cincinnati. Yeah, yeah. To 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 play in an NFL game and then go get a hit in a big league game. People don't understand how hard that is, but Dion was able to do that. And I respected that a lot, but it's not what I saw when I saw a bowl on the field. He was just different. I mean, he was break the mold. It's it's, one in a a little bit of a little bit of Tyree kill right now. You know, when, when you stand, when I stand on the practice field and I watch what he does, it's just so different from anything else I've ever seen on a, basketball court, a baseball field, a football field. I mean, Eric Spolster is a friend of mine. I brought him out to practice, and we were standing there uh, in training camp watching Tyreek run around, and he just looked at me like, I have never seen an athlete that explosive in my life. Um, his ability to, you know, he's so he's so big. Like, he's he's got hamstrings. I've never seen hamstrings on – anyone like that in my life other than a lion like like right. his it's like a statue his, his body is so full of dense with muscle that you would think there's no way he could be a fluid athlete you know that he, he would just be you know oftentimes when guys are that strong and that bulky and that big they they're, they're jerky you know in their motions they might be explosive they might be twitchy they might be fast but they're not fluid uh, he's twitchy and incredibly fluid. Um, it's really, it's really, it's really something, it's something to see. It's something to watch. Yeah. A few more and I'll let you out of here. Um, I want to talk about things that y- you mentioned the training facility, uh, that obviously you're proud of what, what it became. Um, stand up for cancer. You were a big, uh, part of ushering that into the game. Um, I played it. It was once Joe Robbie Stadium. Then it was pro player. Now it's hard rock. Uh, you had a huge part in that, in, in the facility that it is today. Um, what are you most proud of in your career? And that was those are just examples. Any, anything. Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, in my career, I mean, if you ask me what I'm most proud of, I'd say my three boys. Uh, in, in my career, you know, uh, you know, it's the people, it's the people that I've hired and, and helped develop and the teams that we built. And, uh, you know, the, the team, the, the business team we had in San Diego, or just the team we built in San Diego at the Padres when I was there, you know, people maybe may not realize this, but, uh, you know, let's talk about baseball for a moment. I mean, uh, we hired AJ Hinch. He went on to win world series. We hired Dave Roberts before he'd ever, you know, coached he went on to win a world series we had brad osmus there and mark kotze we had uh, uh jed hoyer is now the president of the cubs and and jason mcleod and you know the people that went on to do great things um in the business you know we had people one of them is now the president of the soccer team in orlando one of them's a partner at, in a private equity firm doing incredible things uh one of them's now the president of the Arizona Cardinals. One of them is the president of the F1 race here for me. Uh, 
one of them was the CEO of the Brooklyn Nets. One of them's an SVP at the NBA. Uh, and I'm sure I'm forgetting some people, but you know, there was, it was an incredible team of people that we assembled that were all working together at the time who went on to do great things. And you, you know, when you, when you hire people in their twenties or even their early thirties and you're a part of, you know, uh, providing opportunities and watching them develop and grow and you see, you see them grow as leaders and you see their families grow. And, uh, you know, that's really rewarding and, uh, and trying to do that, do that here too. I mean, we've got the president of the soccer game, uh, soccer team in Chicago, uh, uh, worked here with us at the dolphins, uh, you know, just, just developing people and watching them grow their careers. I'm probably most proud of that. I think when I look back on it, when I'm 75, you know, I'll be more proud of that than, uh, you know, the buildings that were built, et cetera. Um, you know, certainly the things we're doing in the community. Again, I'm lucky I have a guy like Steve Ross who, who not only supports those things, but comes up with ideas and understands the importance of them. You know, we've raised, uh, you know, I'm actually headed to a board meeting here for, for Sylvester Cancer Center right when I'm done with this. And you know, we raised over $10 million this year uh, with our Dolphins Cancer Challenge for, for Sylvester Cancer Center. When you do those things, and 100% of those proceeds go to, to, to cancer research. And people come up to you at the event and say, you know, you saved my life and give you a hug and they're crying. And you're like, I didn't save your life. You know? They say, no, no, the money that you're raising helps, you know, provide research and clinical trials that literally saved my life. Uh, those, are, those are big moments. And, uh, you know, we're just very lucky to be doing what we're doing, to be involved in something that, imp that we can use to impact people's lives. Uh, every game when I was in baseball before every game, I'd grab a ball out of the bag and give it to a kid. Uh, and I do it in football. Every game I grab a football out of the bag and I'll find a kid in the stands wearing a dolphins Jersey and throw it to him. And, and, uh, you never know, you know, how those moments impact people's lives that 20 years later, they say that that was something that, that impacted them. And I'll, I'll, I'll leave with this one story. I'll digress to when I was in San Diego, I used to hold the four seats right behind home plate, uh, the best seats in the entire ballpark. And um, in fact, those seats were closer to home plate than the pitcher in San Diego. And I would go up, you know, an hour, two hour, hour and a half before the game, I'd go up to the upper deck and I'd find a family of four and I'd introduce myself and say, you just got upgraded. And I'd walk them down the elevator, walk them through the tunnel past the clubhouse uh, into the Sony club there at the time, uh, and then, you know, upgrade them to those four seats. Well, I did this probably, you know, 60 times a year or something, because the other 21, maybe I was, some VIP was there that needed to sit there or something. One day I'm on the radio and this woman calls in and uh, she, she says, uh, hey, you won't remember me, but, you know, you came up and I was at a game with my mom and my daughter and you came up and gave us some seats. Um, and you walked us down uh, behind home plate and put us in the best seats in the ballpark. And what you didn't know then, and I'll share with you now, is that my mom was a, a lifelong Padres fan and, uh, and she was dying of cancer. And her, her last wish was she wanted to go to one more game. And that happened to be the game. And you walked us down there and put us in those seats. And I was with my, my daughters and my mom and uh, we were able to give her that, that experience for her last game. And she said, she, you know, she died three days later. And uh, we'll always have that memory. And you gave my mom this great. And I'm on, the, I'm on the radio. I'm on the phone crying, you know. And so you never know, you know, uh, how you're going to impact people's lives. But it's a privilege to have the platform and the resources and the ability to do it. And I try not to take that for granted. And, and uh, you know, those are the things I, I, I'll be most proud of someday when uh, – I'm looking back, reflecting on it is, you know, how did you use it to, to impact people? Auto racing background, Chip Ganassi, you worked for. Uh, you're the managing partner currently for, for Miami Formula One Grand Prix. Uh, Grand Prix just came to Vegas. How tough is it uh, getting Grand Prix to the United States? How big of a lift is that? Well, it took a lot of persistence, uh, a lot of patience. It took four and a half years from sort of when we first started talking about it until until we actually got the deal done and, and got the race here. I think, uh, you know, it was an idea, a vision that 
you know, initially came from, from being there and driving outside the, the stadium. And there's a 199th street outside the stadium. It's like an eight lane road. And I remember thinking to myself, this is a racetrack. Uh, and, you know, over time, you know, we were able to pull it off. Formula One's been a great partner in Liberty Media. Um, and, and again, trying to do something different. Uh, I don't know that anybody had ever quite done an event like that before around a stadium. Uh, you know, doing a street race in the United States, hats off to the folks in Vegas. It's really hard to do. Initially, F1 wanted us to do a street race here in Miami. Um, but you're constrained by the, by, the, by the streets in terms of the quality of the racetrack. Uh, you're constrained by the ingress, egress. It's hard to control things. It takes three or four months to build everything, to get ready for the event, the grandstands, et cetera. It's a month to, at least to tear it all down. Um, so street races, you're, you're, you're disrupting you know, in, in, in the case here in Miami, we would have been disrupting the port, uh, the Miami Heat Arena, businesses along that part of town, uh, residences along that part of town. Uh, whereas, you know, where the stadium is, the stadium is built to hold big events. It's, it's easy to get in and out because it's right off the freeway intentionally. Uh, we have 240 acres there that we control. So the only people we were disrupting was ourselves. Uh, and, and we were able to build a, a purpose-built racetrack uh, that has great racing and, and innovate sort of different experiences and, and, and different things we could do there. And that was really the goal. Uh, it, it was tough to pull off, but especially once we got the deal signed, we had 11 months to build it before, before we had a race. And uh, it's not like you just, you know, put some cones up around the parking lot and, and, and go racing. Uh, you know, you have to dig down three, four feet, put drains in the racetrack is the way you have to build the track first is, 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 uh, takes a lot of time and it's very difficult engineering wise. And then just propping up, you know, grandstands, hospitality, bathrooms. I think we had 65 independent kitchens around the site, uh, and doing all that post pandemic and, you know, an environment where the supply chains are difficult and, uh, it, it was a challenge for sure, but it was a lot of fun. Tommy, you got, man, you're, you're, you're kind of, you got your hands in everything, baseball, football, Grand Prix. So you're probably as qualified as anybody to ask this. And I'm going to let you out of here. I know you got to go to a meeting. It, it, the hierarchy in, hierarchy in the United States always been major league baseball, football, basketball, hockey, the big four. Do you see anything in the future ever shaking up those four and, and, and another sport or another skill ever taking over that? Or, or as long as this earth is here, you, do you see it going forward with those four? Well, you know, no one can predict the, the, the future, Booney, but I can tell you this. You know, Bob Dupay, who used to be the president of Major League Baseball, used to say, you know, if you go back in the, in the 50s, the, the top sports were arguably – uh, boxing and horse racing, you know, and baseball. Um, so, you know, things can change. I think, uh, you know, soccer is the biggest sport internationally mm -hmm. uh, and is a growing sport in this country. Um, and, and I can tell you this, <laughs> things are changing at a faster pace than ever before in human history. If you go back in the flux capacitor and the DeLorean in the year, 1100 and then you go back to 1400 1500 nothing really changed you know weaponry communication transportation life expectancy nothing really changed um in the 20th century you know things changed at a really fast pace in the last 20 30 years things are changing exponentially they change faster than ever before so disruption and the opportunity and the ability for a business to die and another one to flourish uh, is more possible, not probable or likely, but more possible than ever before. And I think no matter what business you're in, if it's baseball, football, or, you know, building, you know, computer, whatever it is, um, you know, there's entire businesses, you know, Kodak was one of the biggest brands in the world uh, and, and hardly exists anymore. And you've got Instagram is now one of the biggest brands in the world. You know, in uh, 20 years ago, you know, we all had Nokia phones in our pocket. <laughs> you know, then we all had Blackberries in our pocket. Now we all have, you know, uh, Apple or Google in our pocket. So 
you know, things can get disrupted very quickly. Uh, I don't know where it's going. I think the NFL right now is, uh, is, is in an amazing place. I mean, if you consider that the Hall of Fame preseason game this year, the first preseason game of the year, was the Packers against the Browns. The, the first string players were not playing. It was a preseason game. And that preseason game pulled higher television ratings than the World Series, the NBA Finals, or the Stanley Cup Finals. So, you know, I think that tells you, you know, that's a, a fact that speaks to the relevance of the National Football League in this country right now, what it means. You know, the draft pulled five times uh, the NBA playoffs in terms of TV ratings. So, you know, the NFL is a, is a very relevant thing in our society today in a lot of different ways. Uh, I think uh, baseball is 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 in, is in a great place, and and you know certainly this year has been a big year for baseball in a lot of ways. The NBA is doing a lot of amazing things. Uh, you know, people want people want to experience life together, and they want to have fun, and they want to watch excellence, and that's what all these sports are. You know, you know what it is. You played Major League Baseball. I think there's there's over a million high school football players a year. Seven percent of them, you know, make it to play college football at any college, and something like maybe three hundred and fifty of those million will ever play in the NFL. And and the baseball stats are similar. So it's it's what you're watching is the greatest at what they do in the world, and I don't think that's changing anytime soon. And I think people love that, and that's what's exciting about it. Tommy. I appreciate you coming on uh, the Boone podcast. It's a lot of fun, in, insightful. It just uh, interesting, you know, stuff stuff that that I, I I got to learn today. But I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day. For all you out there watching the Boone podcast on YouTube or listening to the podcast, I appreciate you tuning in, and we will see you next time. <laughs>